At Marshalls, our buyers hustle to get you great deals on great gifts. Cashmere sweater, nice. You'll get brand name quality gifts for everyone on your list and yourself too. Hello, designer fragrance. More brands, more quality, more gifts for less. At Marshalls, gift the good stuff. Show podcast dedicated to the good, the bad, and the preposterous of movies, either starving about or by pop stars, with a full range of musical and cinematic genres from country and western to hip hop, documentaries to science fiction. I'm your host, Graham Williamson. I'm a filmmaker and film critic for Horrified, the British horror website, as well as the Geek Show, where I do film reviews and classic Doctor Who reviews on our Patreon. I am joined this week by. Uh, you're joined by Mark Cunliffe. I uh, also write for The Geek Show. I write for We Are Cults. Um, I write for Arrow. I write some uh, booklet essays for Arrow, for various Arrow films. And I've got a chapter in Scarred for Life Volume 2, which is available now from lulu.com. You do in, indeed. Uh, we should probably plug our letterboxed pages as well, in case there's anyone new listening. Uh, Absolutely, I'm yeah. Just at Graham Williamson. You can search for Graham Williamson and find me there. Yeah, if you look for Mark Cunliffe, I should be there as well. Um, yeah. Hmm. Well, there are many noble reasons for making a feature film. Three of the noblest include immortalising a classic performance, delivering a stark message on modern society, or doing an old Disney cartoon, but it's CGI now, so it's better. <laughs> the noblest of them all, however, has to be, you've got a load of British and Irish rock stars together for a tour in a country that is currently in the grip of civil war, and you have just realised that that's a bad idea in wise and you need to get them to do something. That was the <laughs> impetus behind our film this week, Straight to Hell, Alex Cox's follow-up to Sid and Nancy, which united Joe Strummer, Elvis Costello, Grace Jones, Courtney Love and the Pogues in a spaghetti western-inflected story of fleeing bank robbers falling foul of coffee-addicted bandits. Surprisingly, on release, the resulting film was determined to be a bit rum. <laughs> yeah quite a surprise that isn't it <laughs> i think the first we've got to sort of address if you do if, yeah. if, if we're uh, if we're going straight into it is um the cast because it's an exceptional cast it's um, an extraordinary say, cast yeah he had um he had like strummer costello the pokes uh they were all supposed to be going to nicaragua weren't they um, yes to do benefit a, a concert tour for the, the sandinistas yeah. Um, but that went pear shaped. Um, then they just decided to go to Almira and uh, make a film. It's <laughs> yes. A film that took three days to write and five weeks to make, if I believe is correct. I think there, there um, is some controversy over whether it took three days to write or four days to write. This is one of the uh, main bones of contention in straight to hell scholarship. 
24 hours makes all the difference, doesn't it? <laughs> what, what a difference a day makes, as the song says. Yes, <laughs> indeed. <laughs> but not only uh, those rock luminaries, but you've mm. also got um, Dennis Hopper. Yeah. Some regular Cox performers from his repertory company. So you've got uh, Miguel Sandoval. Uh, yes. Jennifer. Balgoban. Balgoban, thank you. I can never, I'm never sure how to pronounce her name. I can see it in my head, and then I think, is that right, Balgoban? But yeah, we'll go with that. Um, who else? Uh, Dick Kathy Rude. Burke. Dick yeah. Rude, yeah. Uh, um, Cy Richardson. The great Cy Richardson. Yeah, he's wonderful. Uh, Courtney Love, as I think we mentioned at the top there. Indeed. Uh, Grace Jones. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Kathy Burke, Michelle Winstonley, Sarah Sugarman. Um, Ed Tudor Pole. Ed Tudor Pole, of course, yes. <laughs> Doing what I think legally might just qualify as an American accent. Just about, I think. Xander yeah. yeah. um, Barkley, uh, another yes. Cox Luminary. This, I mean, it, it's a stacked, eccentric cast. Oh, Jim Jamoosh. Jim Jamoosh pops yes. up as well, doesn't he? Yeah. Yeah. And he's um, right at the back end of the film, isn't he? Yeah. Uh, and, um, he's playing essentially the same role that Bill Murray plays in Jim Jamoosh's film, The Limits of Control, I thought. Right. He's a canny magpie, Jamoosh. I think he, he might have like filed that away for future away. reference. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. definitely. Um, and Graham Fletcher Cook, who was uh, Dexter Fletcher's brother as oh, well. Really? Yeah, he's um, he gets the two roles, doesn't he? he plays Whitey that gets uh, lynched mm. in the town square, and then later he's Whitey's brother. I can see the resemblance, but I never it never clicked that he was Dexter Fletcher's brother. Yeah, he's like a blonde Dexter Fletcher, isn't he? He is. Yes. Yeah. Um, it's quite. He odd passed that... away recently, I believe. Oh, did he? That's a shame. yeah. I think so. Yeah. I did Fletcher? So. Did Dexter Fletcher ever work with Alex Cox? Uh, nothing's springing to mind. He may well have done, and it may not have um, been on my radar. But nothing's springing to mind. It's quite. He did Jarman, didn't he? he? Did um, Caravaggio? With, yes. Uh, yeah. I would have thought that Cox would have been Fletcher's kind of director because he seemed to be making a sort of round tour of weird old directors of the 1980s, like say Jarman. He worked with David Lynch. Uh, yeah, the Elephant Man. Yeah. 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 Yeah, absolutely. Um, yes, yeah, strange. It's not. I mean, unless we're completely, we're having a complete mind blank, and he, there is something he's in, but nothing's springing to mind at the minute. It's very easy to forget the cast of an Alex Cox film because, as you say, there are so many people here, and all of them are people who you would not imagine were ever in the same room, let alone the same yeah. film. Uh, basically, is it a film or is it a holiday, though? <laughs> that's my big that's my big thing about whenever I've watched Straight to Hell. Is this a film or is this just some really expensive holiday home movie? I think the most interesting <laughs> piece of evidence from that perspective is there's a deleted scene where Elvis Costello's butler character is hives, tied is hives, yeah. yeah, hives the butler. He's tied to a chair and whipped by his then wife, Kate O'Riordan, from the Pogues. And you think, yeah, 
I mean, either Elvis Costello got the bad end of the stick here, or he got the very, very good end of the stick, depending <laughs> on his personal kind of... Uh... Depending on his preferences, yeah. yeah. Well, the interesting thing is this, on the credits, you'll find there's a sex and cruelty consultant for the film. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Martin Taylor. So I imagine that was um, a significant part, the just that, that one scene, I guess. But <laughs> Yes, it's very true. It is... I haven't seen everything Cox has directed, but I feel like this might be his most weirdly horny film. Yeah, it's um, there's a lot of yeah, it's 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 a lot of people sort of washed up in a certain place and suddenly finding the strangest of uh, of bedfellows, really. I guess. Yes. Yeah. And it's 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 a bit simmering <laughs> under the Almiran heat. <laughs> yeah. I think uh, I think there is there is a point to it, and I think the sexual frustration of it means something. But I must admit, when Jennifer Balgavan started watching that motorcycle, I just I did think you're just entertaining yourself now, Alex. There yeah. are you. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's an interesting scene. <laughs> it is. It, it has its charms. I will put it that way. Even Michelle Winstonly in like the most amazing outfit, mm. <laughs> and it's a whole film full of amazing outfits, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, that is true. That is true. Yeah, yeah. I'm very Including... fond of uh, Fox Harris's white suit that he puts on when he sings Delilah. Yeah, <laughs> it's in my repertoire. <laughs> <laughs> Plus, of course, Have sorry. Have you seen the behind-the-scenes documentary about this, by the way? Yes, yes. Isn't yes, Fox yeah. Harris exactly the guy you want him to be? Yeah, it's exactly what you see is what you get, isn't it? It's it's exactly what you'd expect <laughs> from him. Yeah. I like to imbue my roles with a certain frisson. <laughs> Amazing. It's brilliant, absolutely brilliant. But... um. Also, we've heard about costumes. You've got to point, we've got to point out the Pogues play the... And everybody gets the pronunciation wrong, but I think it's supposed to be Matt Mahone, isn't it? Or Matt Mahone? I'm not sure. Matt Mahone would be a good Pogues in-joke, I think. Yeah, I think so as well, but it seems to be that everybody pronounces it slightly differently in the film. Yeah, let's call them uh, Matt Mahone. Yeah? Yeah. I think that probably sounds the right one, doesn't it? They... Um, they were mariachi costumes. Yes. <laughs> Which is a brilliant um, aesthetic, but you get the idea of like, there's an Irish folky rock punk band mm. who aren't really Irish, now dressed as a mariachi band in Spain. <laughs> it's a lot, yes, as they say, yes. It is a lot, isn't it? <laughs> and the introduction of them is so chaotic and I'm, I must admit the introduction yeah. was the one point where Straight to Hell had a very bad reception on release and the introduction of the MacMahons was the bit where I thought ah the critics might have had a point because it's so squabbling and chaotic that it, it yeah. becomes kind of annoying. Yeah every single person is do I mean I've I've worked in community theatre and agitprom <laughs> and it's literally that every single person is doing their own little bit of acting yeah at exactly the same time and it doesn't correspond with what anybody else is doing. Yes. So you've got Elvis Costello 
tottering around with the drinks tray doing oh look at me i'm a refined aesthetic englishman Ooh, you know, <laughs> while everybody else is like going and shooting and going yeehaw and all that kind of stuff it's just oh it's it's an unbearable opening if you can get past how slapdash amateur that is mm. <laughs> it's quite and a it's weird... shame because the, the setup before it yeah it's quite professional isn't it it's um the gang richardson strummer rude and uh courtney love um mm. you know that that's quite a, a professional looking setup that opening uh those opening scenes but it's only when you get to the actual uh spaghetti western town that you know the the pogues turn up and everything that's then just chaos that's just and then it's followed by ed tudor paul chewing the scenery something appallingly and as you say so out of character for him as well isn't yeah it? such a subtle refined performer isn't he <laughs> <laughs> oh but, god he's he is dreadful in this it's good it's only good. a very short scene yeah because it is utterly dreadful <laughs> so this is one of those things that i think you have to talk about with straight to hell because it was the probably i mean there's hints of it in repo man but it's probably the first indication that most people will have picked up on something very very central to alex cox's personality which is that man does he ever love spaghetti westerns yeah yeah (laughs) that's he really does this is supposed to be based on um django kill isn't it or it's a homage to django kill it's got a few now, shots I've seen... in it, like the arm coming from the grave where you can see yes, yeah. I think. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say, I've seen Django Kill, but a very, very long time ago. Mm. And all I can remember about Django Kill is that it is batshit crazy. Yeah. And <laughs> if, his, if his way of doing a homage is, let's make a film that's also spaghetti western and also batshit crazy, then job done. He's done that. <laughs> it's a fair point. Yeah, I think there is also this kind of, weird sex undertone to Django Kill that is kind of unusual in Spaghetti Westerns. There's a sense that everyone in it is hiding some sort of kink that is bubbling to the surface. And yeah, I think that's that's a fair thing to compare straight to hell to. Well, yeah, I mean, you don't really get many homosexual characters in a Spaghetti Western, do you? You get camp characters. Yeah. Yeah. sort of sexually repressed um aesthetes i guess mm. um but once the, the, the villain in i was gonna say the villain in sabata is a great example of that sexually oh. repressed aesthete is very like almost like a bond villain yeah um but not outwardly homosexual no no that's very unusual um yeah and it, it's quite strange to me that loving spaghetti westerns so much, and he, you know, it's not a figure of speech. He literally wrote the book on them. There is an Absolutely. Alex Cox book about spaghetti westerns. It, he so many thousand to, ways to die in the West. Is that what it's called? I think so. Yeah, I can't remember exactly how many ways. I do to have die it as well? Are. I'm not sure where it's on my bookshelf somewhere. I do have it, but I, I can't remember the title. Why don't I have it? Um, let me let me just look this up. Yeah, Ten Thousand Ways to Die, a director's take on the spaghetti western. Yeah, it's a it's a good book. It's um yeah. it's a nice um it's one of those that if you hear a spaghetti western title and you go, oh, I'm not sure about that. It's a great pull it down, find it in the index, read about the making of it, read about what is 
opinion of it is. It's a yeah. nice little review book. And it's quite weird, really, thinking that he has this deep love for spaghetti westerns and his main sort of approach to directing them in this film seems to be, let's never have a second silence. <laughs> has, there, has there ever been a good spaghetti western with a pause in it? I think not. <laughs> That's true. I had thought of that actually. Yeah, it is wall to wall obnoxious sound, really, isn't it? <laughs> and yes. uh, there is no, there's none of that Leone pause or anything like that. Or um, yeah, and even even when he tries to do great wide angle shots with like mm. all the protagonists in it, it's slapdash. There's a boom mic visible. I think it's the very the scene where Ed Tudor Pole and his posse come in. You can see, and everybody's all lined up in that great sort of Leone sort of stance. Yeah. You can see a boom mic just bobbing up and down in the top right corner. I'll it's have just, to go back to that. I missed that. It's really distracting. And you think somebody who really knows his stuff mm. would be on it. I mean, it can't have anything to do with the copious amounts of wine and grass that was being uh, <laughs> banded around the set, can it? <laughs> it's almost like making a film on holiday with a bunch of hard drinking rock stars is a bit of a bad way to just get a coherent film. Just a bad idea, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it is just a holiday movie, isn't it? I mean, I've got a couple of quotes here. Um, mm. There's a great one from Kathy Burke, which says, um, straight to shit's what I call it. <laughs> Bollocks. <laughs> a great laugh, but that's what the film looked like. Look at us having a laugh. But it was fantastic sitting up on a mountain with Elvis Costello. <laughs> so, okay, greatest living English woman or merely one of the greatest living English womans. Where do we stand on Kathy Burke? Oh, greatest living English woman. I would agree, yes. Definitely. Yeah. There's also a good quote from Shane McGowan, um, mm. which goes, the, be the best thing about it was it was five weeks paid holiday in southern Spain. Fucking brilliant, and you can almost hear yes. after it, can you? <laughs> His radio static laugh, yes. the white noise mirth <laughs> strikes again. <laughs> yeah, um, and uh, I think there's there's a lot of truth in that. I mean, it's the sort of film that you direct when you want to have great stories about filmmaking rather than yeah. a great film. Yeah, I mean, it's a barrier for an audience. I can see why a lot of people hate this film because you're watching people having a laugh, as as, um, mm. as Kathy Burke says and as literally says and as Shane McGowan sort of alludes to. It is yeah. them having a party. And that can either be viewed as self-indulgent or it can be viewed as kind of like, God, I wish I was there. Or, yeah. um, you know, or just, just enjoying the actual anarchic eccentric post-punk ride of it all i guess and there are bits of it which i think even the movie's harshest critics admit are actually kind of inspired like the bit with xander schloss as the hot dog salesman the wiener guy yeah yeah, yeah. i love i mean i don't know if we're going to give the thing away but there's a great scene near the end isn't there where he's like i don't you know i, I, I don't have much but i've got like you know <laughs> a, a will to do this please let me be in your gang and it's like they, as the townsfolk are all you know about to fight one another and they just look at him and they shoot 
Yes. <laughs> I mean, you just don't expect that, do you? You think, right, okay, he's going to join them and then there'll be a noble sacrifice where he just sort of like walk out and die in a hail of bullets. But no, they don't even let him join. They just die. They just kill him in a hail of bullets straight away. <laughs> I think that final act is where the film's genre identity becomes a bit clearer. You're not quite yeah. sure if it's a spoof for about two-thirds of the runtime, but I think the ending is spoofy enough to make it work. Yeah, definitely, definitely. It's a weird... I mean, I always say Tarantino definitely watched this and nicked a lot from it. Yes. Just from yeah. the way that Richardson, Strummer and Rude are dressed for a start, which is... Yeah. Reservoir Dogs. It's put. It's certainly. I, I would certainly go to bat to say that Richardson and Strummer are basically uh, Samuel L. Jackson and John Travolta in Pulp Fiction. The the Sam Jackson thing is extraordinary. They're even wearing like a similar wig. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's just it's just obvious, really. I mean, and as, as you say, you mentioned Jamush being a magpie. I mean, mm. Tarantino's the biggest magpie of them all, isn't he? No kidding. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, that's definitely there. So, it, but, you know, you can kind of live with it because this is a film that has so many homages going on. Yeah. That it's only, it's going to be inevitable that you're going to homage the homage. Is that right? <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> that you're going to end up accidentally homaging something that hasn't been made yet in a bizarre yeah. causality accident. Yeah, I think that's exactly, what happened. Yeah, yeah. I mean, is it worth trying to mention the plot of this? Is, is there, there a one? plot? <laughs> no, <laughs> not really. No, basically, I think that the loosest setup for it that you can get is that uh, Strummer, Rude, Richardson and Love uh, rob a bank, they try to get away and they end up in this bizarre isolated town, which is basically I was trying to work this out because a lot of articles on Straight to Hell say that it's an anachronistic film which I don't think is quite right I think Cox's next film, Walker, definitely That's is. an anachronistic film, yeah I don't think Straight to Hell is anachronistic, I think it's supposed to be set in the 80s Yes, yeah. I don't think we're pretending this is like early 20th century Mexico or something like that. It's it's mm. 80s Mexico. It's just like a ghost town, isn't it? It's like the town that time forgot kind of I thing. I think that's that's kind of the gag of it, that they go, their getaway is so successful and they go so far off the map that they end up somewhere that still runs by the logic of old spaghetti western ghost towns. Yeah. Or is it just hell itself? Perhaps. You know, there's a lot of... Um, Interesting stuff going on when they come across that car, and, he, and uh, I, think, I don't know if it's Dick Rude or Courtney Love say it, it looks exactly like our car. You know, it's crashed and there's oh, dead people yeah. inside it. And Strummer immediately goes, No, it looks nothing like our car. And then it's picked up again later. And you kind of think, Well, are they dead? You know, is this yeah. some sort of uh, ghostly, um, go a literal ghost town? You know, it's got a lot of interesting religious imagery in it. Probably the most famous one is the crucifix at the end with the little skeleton tied skeleton to it, on. Yeah. Which reminded me slightly of um like maybe the monkey that gets tied to a cross in Herzog's even dwarves started small. Maybe that died and they're just still <laughs> carrying it around. I don't know. 
<laughs> it's a brilliant aesthetic though isn't it it's very yeah. striking i think it's the cover of the dvd as well it is um, yeah so it's certainly it's, um, the cover of the one i've got yeah so that's uh that it is a striking shot definitely mm. um but even uh, even the town itself is a ghost town when you think about it because it's um it's an old spaghetti western town i think it was built for charles bronson film i was gonna say sure charles bronson movie yeah i can't i've heard it I've heard it being called Chino, but as with a lot of spaghetti westerns, it's probably got a dozen different English language names. Yes. Yeah. But Chino is the one I think I've heard, but I'm sure I heard Joe Strummer say something differently on, on an interview once. Yeah. Like you say, it's it's sort of how how can you say what the definite name of a spaghetti western is? They were all retitled a thousand yeah. times. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. Um, so it, it it could be any of uh, it could be any name really, and I don't know if I've seen that particular film, but it's a it's a striking looking location, hmm. um, and yeah, I mean it is it is a self indulgent movie, but who wouldn't want to be in a town like that and say, okay, go and play cowboys? Exactly, you know, yeah, you'd yeah. love it, wouldn't you? You'd love that opportunity. So I can't really begrudge them. Yeah, uh, I can't say lucky bastards, but I can't begrudge them the uh, the opportunity to just dick about on a on a living set. Although it is like a completely different film in terms of style and tone and narrative, it did remind me of those travelogue films that Rim Vendors would occasionally do, like Tokyo Gal, Lisbon Story. Ah, right, yeah. Um, okay. I think the crucial difference is that when Vendors made those films, he'd already established himself. He'd already made like about 10 major art house successes, including Paris, Texas and Wings of Desire. Whereas Cox made this when he'd done, he'd done Edge City, which was his thesis film, which didn't get a commercial release. He'd done Repo Man, which did get a commercial release, but was buried because the studio were absolutely appalled by it. And he'd done Sid and Nancy, which was a hit. And I think this would have been much more fondly looked at if it wasn't the latest work by that hot new director you've only just heard of. You've only just heard of. It's it's timing is everything, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you do... You do Repo Man, it gets buried, as you say, but then you do Sid and Nancy, and then people are forced to sort of go, who is this guy? And they look at Repo Man, and suddenly that's be- that's becoming a cult after only a brief sort of release period, really, yes. isn't it? A couple yeah. of years after it's been made, and suddenly it's becoming a cult. So you, you're eager to think, what's he going to do next? And he does a genuine out-there piss-up yeah, <laughs> captured yeah. on, on celluloid. <laughs> And it's funny because one of the main reasons why he did this was because, as we say, we had a hole in his schedule. It wasn't just that the tour had fell through, although that was a major thing, but also Walker, his next American film, was taking ages to set up and move through the system. Yeah. And I don't know, it is, it is worth thinking about, isn't it? If Walker had come out as the follow-up to Sid and Nancy... Would it still have been, I think, unjustly monstered? Or would there be a sense of, ah, well, I don't like everything in it, but you can see the the genius who directed Sid and Nancy is still at work here. Yeah, it's an interesting what if, isn't it? Because Mm. you kind of think it was never going to be warmly received, certainly not in America. No. um, 
it's never going to be well received in the, in that regard. But would would it have, or, or was it just the the thing that nobody could tolerate the idea of an, an anachronistic Western? You know, who knows? Yeah, yeah. Whether the knives are going to be out anyway, whether they, whether because it came out after this, people were saying, "Oh God, he's doing another bloody Western." You know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> But maybe who knows if he if he had done Walker first, this might have been looked upon more fondly. Perhaps. Might yeah. have said, oh well, this is just the this is just the um the after show party kind of thing. Let's yeah. just give him his bit of frivolity, enjoy it, you know. Uh, because he's got he's got our um you know, he's got our benefits of the doubt at this stage. But yeah, yeah. I think Walker's a brilliant movie. Um, Walker is great, yeah. I think I mean, I would like it if people listen to this and watch Straight to Hell because I think it's a lot of fun. But I, I need more people to watch Walker. Yeah, I think if if we were trying to um, persuade listeners, viewers, whatever, I would say try and watch them both. You know, yeah. just just double up, just get them both. You know, and just see what you think. Uh, but Walker is a great movie, and especially if you've got our kind of politics, mm. then it's a very good movie. If you're you're not going to be liking that film if you're a Donald Trump supporter. <laughs> Although you never know, because what, one of the most incredible things about Republicans at the moment for me is that you give them a couple of years after a Republican president leaves office and it turns out that no one actually voted for him. Yeah, that's true. That is true, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, maybe, you know... <laughs> maybe Trump supporters. Maybe we could get them over onto the Sandinista side with a few screenings <laughs> of Walker. Maybe we could do that. You never know. You never know. Great performance by Ed Harris as well in Walker, has to be said. I think it's it's one of those again, a film that has a really solid cast. Ed Harris is great in it, Marley Matlin is great in it, and around the edges you still have the Cox gang, including quite a few people who were in this film as well. Yeah. Yeah, Strummer pops up, doesn't he? Strummer with a beard yes. which is yeah. almost unrecognizable really but um <laughs> yeah he's, a, he's quite an interesting actor joe strummer um i don't think that gets spoken yeah, about yeah. often enough but when you think how much of his persona was he playing at at the best of times you know somebody yeah. who could who was called woody to begin with you know to, to sort of pay homage to woody guthrie and be a bit of a folky um mm. and then suddenly a down and dirty cockney rebel um, yeah, but all the while you've got to think he was an ambassador's son or a diplomat's son or something, you know. So it's, yeah. um, there's a lot of um, play acting in him, which I think does mean that he's quite impressive in this film. Yeah, um, not not an amazing award-winning actor by any stretch of the imagination, but he can say a line and you don't wince. You know, there's yeah, a lot yeah. of pop stars and rock stars who can't do that. Yes. <laughs> I mean, there is, yeah, <laughs> there is an element where I think the size of the cast here worked against him. Because if you were like an LA talent agent and you were trying to persuade someone to take a chance on Joe Strummer in a film, <laughs> would you be going around to some good? I should watch Straight to Hell. He plays the guy in a suit with greasy hair. No, not that one. The other one. No, not, not that one either. <laughs> or that one. He does have he does have a great thing, just the greasy hair thing. He does have a great scene as where he's got a can of um castor oil. Eight, yeah. And he oh, just yeah. sort of uh, he just puts the um just drips it over the comb and then combs it through. <laughs> <laughs> just GT, just <laughs> 
I mean, it's, it's one of those things where if we are talking about this in terms of the history of pop movies, you have to say that this is one of the many cases where someone has thought the film with all those pop stars in it, I can't see how this could possibly lose money. <laughs> this is like the golden example of that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's not even a cult, is it, really? I mean... Not so much, no. It's Walker a curio. Is a cult film. Walker is a cult film, definitely, yeah. yeah. This is just a weird curio, and maybe it still needs... I remember reading... I think the first time I heard about it must be about 20 years ago. Um, mm. I used to read... I don't know if it was Hot Dog. I think it might have been Hot Dog magazine for anybody who remembers Hot Dog magazine, which was a great magazine, but sort of died a death by... Um, you knew it was dying when literally there was more adverts for Dial 0898 for Busty Blondes. <laughs> there was just yes. gradually the back pages were becoming more and more and the, the film reviews were becoming less and less. So you think, yeah, they're really running out of money at this stage. But yeah, there was, a, I, think it, I think it was Hot Dog. There was a massive piece about it in Hot Dog. Yeah. And um, I just thought, God, what's this film? I've got to see this film, you know? <laughs> I remember, um, because I used to take the magazine into work mm. and uh, it was just being passed around, like saying, oh God, no, I've never heard of this. But yeah. they had Kathy Burke's in it. You know, there's this weird sort of buzz about this film that we'd never heard of, but just reading it from and trying to piece it together from the magazine and then seeing if whether you could get it on video or DVD. I remember, yeah, so. I remember reading a fair bit about Cox in magazines around like the early noughties. Uncut were always beating the drum for him as well. It might have been Uncut rather than Hot Dog, actually. Yeah. yeah. It might have been Uncut. Yeah. And I got my DVD of this film uh, from a magazine that I don't think I ever bought again. I was already an Alex Cox fan, so I thought, oh, I've got a chance to get straight to hell. It was in a, in a magazine called Total DVD, which... All right, that rings a bell, yeah. And it, it's it's truth in advertising because I did get a total DVD with it. It wasn't like half of Straight to Hell. <laughs> they they lived up to their name. You weren't for any trace descriptions afterwards. No, no. <laughs> I bought total DVD and I've only got half a DVD. <laughs> I think trace descriptions was the one phone line they didn't have an advert for in the back. <laughs> the back pages. <laughs> It was the only one that wasn't 0898. <laughs> <laughs> that was a weird time for those magazines. I remember it was like, you know, you get your Nokia 3310 that was sort of like, download yeah. this pixelated picture of some page three stunner. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So random shite that they put in the back of them, but they were tanking money, those magazines at the time, weren't they? It was such a, a short boom and bust for those type of um Film, like magazines. film and culture magazines yeah, I, yeah. I, I understand it being a hard time although I would love to know how it became this industry-wide belief that, that the one industry that we should hitch our star to were the phone uh, sex lines business <laughs> because that that's never going to become obsolete right that's always <laughs> going to be the, the most common but what were you well what were they thinking about us poor film lovers that, you know, they, know. they're gonna two o'clock in the morning they're, they're finished watching godfather three or something they're gonna have a <laughs> <wank, aren't> they? <laughs> they need cheering up for god's sake 
<laughs> I mean, I've been a subscriber to 14 times for about 25 years now, when even during the noughties, there were not many one climbs in the 14 times ads. I think what what you can get certain other like dubious things, self-published books by crackpots, I think is what keeps the 14 times advertising yeah. division afloat. Definitely, definitely. This, I mean, the, it, it's too inherently small a mystery for 14 times. It's the, what are you wearing? You know, the stuff. <laughs> <laughs> they've, got, they've got bigger things at stake. <laughs> There's more mysteries in the world than that, I think. Definitely, yes. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's not. Before we went down this uh, this this sidetrack of <laughs> wank phone numbers, it always gets <laughs> like this when you're on this show. I know. I'm sorry, listeners. I'm sorry, viewers. It's um, it's just me dicking about, really. Um, much like the film itself, it's just people dicking about on camera. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's not. It's it's not a cult film. Mm. It's still even now. What thirty odd years after it was released. It still hasn't really found an audience who are willing to embrace it. And it's also it's still a bit of a curio. I mean, I I get it because it is a very rough, very alienating kind of film in a lot of ways, but there are a lot of things in it, like as you say, the Tarantino connection, where you can look at it and say, ah, this came before that, and it gives you a bit more context to enjoy it in. Like I don't think anyone was really talking about spaghetti westerns in the late 80s. If they were, they were doing it very quietly. Yeah, I think it's sort of, although it's, I think it's it's more, I mean, just looking at uh, Blu-ray releases, it's more popular now, I think. Mm. Um, there's a lot of spaghetti westerns getting released um, and getting dusted down and appreciated. And I mean, they're, they're very easy to... Um, I mean, Stuart Lee is um, a huge fan of spaghetti westerns, and he says, you know, he he literally, I think he said something about watching um, Once Upon a Time in the West as a teenager and mm. missing a part of it, and he didn't get round to seeing it properly until like he was in France um, a few years later and saw it in a cinema. Yeah, so I mean, they were rare as hen's teeth for a bit, yeah. um, but now. You know, you, there's these channels like Movies for Men on, you know, cable, which again yes. sounds like another wank sort of thing, doesn't it? It's like <laughs> it really does. I but think no, they've they... rebranded that because I, I did occasionally like say, oh man, I saw Kioma last night. Oh, what channel? Movies for Men. And as soon as you say it, it's just like, now hear me out on this. Yeah, you've got to sort of, yeah, you've got to then explain yourself, haven't you? Yeah. Uh, but yeah, they were always like... Um, war films or um, macaroni combat films and then spaghetti westerns it just seemed to be wall to wall those weren't there yeah and i think if you've got a, an amazon prime account now there's a load of spaghetti westerns there that are just free to to view yeah um, not the greatest prints you know they're not amazon prime haven't sort of like tidied them up in any respect the they look like they're shot through your man's tights you know <laughs> and <laughs> the sound might be a bit uh like you've got tinnitus or, um, you know, you might not get the right subtitles, but these are rare films and um, quite often they're a very good time as well. 
again, if you're politically inclined, a good spaghetti western is um, always has something a bit more damning to say about the state of the world, perhaps than even more so than social realism films, really. Well, it's one of those things, isn't it, where the American Westerns have to bite their tongue a bit about issues like, you know, the Indian Wars being a genocide because they are made by Americans for yeah. an American audience. Yeah, they do, don't they? American films, uh, because, you know, they can't really wag the finger at the problem of capitalism. Yeah. <laughs> yes. It's not a big um, let's attack capitalism movie, is it? Although the suits do come in at the end, but there's mm. no, I mean, it's a film about coffee. I mean, I suppose coffee yeah. is supposed to be, you know, a, <laughs> I don't know. Is it a motif for drugs? Is it a motif for gold? <laughs> yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? So I suppose westerns are a kind of materialistic genre that everyone is always after something and coffee is just an absurd reflection of that maybe yeah i guess yeah yeah i mean i think that the, the interesting uh anti anti-business anti-capitalist capitalism is evil uh device in this film is dennis hopper's character um, yes farben yeah, which he's called I.G. Farben, a name that Cox had previously used in a deleted scene for Repo Man, uh, yeah. but which more significantly is named after the chemical company which manufactured the gas used in the Holocaust. Yeah, I mean, that is... Uh, I don't know how many people pick up, pick up on that. I think, again, you've got to know a bit of... of yeah of world events and history to sort of get or, or just be of a certain political uh, mindset to get that. But um, that's this sort of subtle um, knowing wink, wink in joke that um, Cox is sort of operating on, I guess. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, at his best, that's a real strength. Repo Man is full of little Easter eggs and references to William S. Burroughs and Sci yeah. the Scientology reference in here as well, isn't there? Actually, he seemed to. Uh, it's I, I had to rewind it a couple of times, but there's an early scene with the robbers and Courtney Love is screaming something over the top of the dialogue because. It's a scene with Courtney Loving. Uh, but one of them definitely says something about Scientology. Yeah, it does ring a vague bell. But perhaps because Courtney Love is screaming over the top of it, I can't quite remember it. I mean, she is obnoxious in this film. Truly obnoxious. I mean, most people would say Courtney Love is obnoxious anyway. Um, but she is incredibly obnoxious in this film. The one scene I really like her in is um, when she meets uh, Sarah Sugarman's character, who's this weird sort of androgynous, um, mm. it's almost like Wally made as a human, really, isn't it? She's yeah. yeah. foul picking things up, doesn't she? Yes. She <laughs> can, can only stick to the script, I think. Whereas I don't know Sarah Sugarman is sticking to the script. Yeah. <laughs> or she's just not used to that kind of performance in front of her. It's very like, what? What the hell? What? <laughs> 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 but 
but yeah, my God, she screams a hell of a lot in this film, doesn't she? It is It is a weird thing with Courtney Love that a lot of the opprobrium that was later heaped on her is something that when you look back at the start of her career, it feels almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy, like not, not in, a, in a bad way, not like it's her fault, but she auditioned for the role of Nancy Spongeon in Sid and Nancy, which is like, it's almost too much, isn't it, really? Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, but yeah, it's 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 a weird, like I say, I mean, you mentioned before the chaos of the uh, the initial introduction scene of the uh, the gang, the Matt, yeah. Mahone, Matt Mahone gang. And um, I said that it's that the conflicting performance styles. It's very mm. much a film that is continuously conflicting performance styles conflicting performance styles the motion picture i think would yeah. be a viable <laughs> alternative title i mean you've got miguel sandoval who's just he's sort of like the he's the stereotype of the um the town bank clerk or the town yeah. hardware store clerk or whatever but he's playing it with clint eastwood's voice yeah <laughs> yes <laughs> He's there. He's little. Um, well, he's, he's basically got a bit of my facial hair, and uh, mm. the, the you know the centre parting thing going on, and the little wiring glasses. But yeah. the, he's like, yeah, get off your horse. Is that Clint Eastwood voice? Yeah, I. I you still, there's a lot of um, interesting choices going on. I think two of the most interesting choices that we haven't mentioned, there is a bit towards the beginning where Norwood, Cy Richardson's character, comes into town with the rest of his gang and they're still wearing their Reservoir dog suits. Uh, but he puts on like this pink and blue floral hat, which is never scene. mentioned again as I far as I can tell. It's the, it's the proper Leone, three strangers into town war, yes. isn't it? And then yeah. he just pulls out what looks like a fucking shower cap yes. <laughs> for an old deer. Just, yep, that's that. I'm sorted now. I am too cool for school. <laughs> and it's great because it's like, I assume the idea is he's wearing it to provoke a fight. It's like Begbie's tank top, isn't it? It's something <laughs> that is just begging someone to start something with him. Yeah, yeah. It's sort of um, urban macho situationism, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see what I can provoke here. <laughs> uh, the other great performance stuff that I think we haven't mentioned, the bit on the balcony with Jem Finer, who is now, of course, a, a very fine composer, works, uh, does the soundtrack to a lot of Andrew Cotting's films. Mm. Uh, but Jem Finer as... Grandpa McMahone and Kathy Burke. Is that or is that not a prototype of Wayne and Wayneetta slob? I had thought that, but yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. Definite vibes there, I think. We've also not mentioned how bloody funny this film can be as well at times. Mm. Again, you might have to be of a certain mindset, but there are some really daft, funny moments in it. Like, you know pushing grandpa off the off the balcony <laughs> in full view of everybody yes. and then just blaming the character of whitey as he comes into town and then lynching him into 
Yes. There's a great bit where Joe Strummer just picks a rock up and throws it at him. It's just a spectacular shot where he's half talking. About, Oof. <laughs> <laughs> it just cracks me up. <laughs> it's like a hair away. I suppose this is the poverty aspect. It is a hair away from how ridiculously unjust most actual westerns could be. Like I rewatched Johnny Guitar recently for the Geek oh, Show, yeah, which yeah, is yeah. a masterpiece of a film, one of the greatest westerns ever made. And you know what, though? I'm not sure when Mercedes McCambridge has built the case that Joan Crawford is hiding that bandit with the, the legal rigour that I expect from her. <laughs> you see, this is it. People think, you know, Westerns should be sort of po-faced, mm. but some of them have just, yeah. It's yeah. Just, especially spaghetti Westerns, and as you say, Westerns like Johnny Guitar, which were just utterly eccentric, not what people expected whatsoever. Yeah. Um, there is some <laughs> weird sort of uh, subversive elements in it that I think were magnified in Spaghetti Westerns and then later in, in, in this, of course. I think uh, yeah. they're brought to the fore, definitely. I think maybe without wanting to downplay the things in it that are wrong and that, that do go wrong and the things in it that are going to be divisive like I mean watch the opening and the litmus test is if you can stand Courtney Love's performance you're going to be fine with the rest of this yeah, yeah. Um, but I just wonder if part of it is because it's going after two audiences who have no overlap there's an audience who would appreciate a really semi-literate spaghetti western spoof and there's an audience who want to see the Pogues play gunslingers. And I just don't think there's a crossover. Yeah, I know what you mean. Um, it's And it, it also becomes that weird tradition of the British Western as well, mm, yes. which is a very interesting sort of um, weird little subgenre of, of, of Western really, you know, uh, where you've got things like the singer, not the song with Dirk Bogard and John Mills the in the fifties, yeah. which is just. <laughs> I mean, we're talking very... about Westerns that have an air of suppressed kink. Yeah. There's one. Yeah. Dirk Bogard in leather trousers. Yes. Um, is definitely up there. Yeah. But I mean, lambasted on its release, but now a bit of a cult, um, of, of cult interest, especially now what we know of Dirk Bogart's um, sexuality as well. Yeah. Uh, but then, you know, we, we were making spaghetti westerns or, or co-financing some spaghetti westerns in the 70s. There's a great one, um, which I have to say almost in a sort of Alexi Sale voice, a town called Bastard. Which is... <laughs> <laughs> which... <laughs> It just sounds like an Alexi Sale punchline, doesn't it? Maybe that's the cross-cultural aspect, you know, that you've asked yourself, where is the British influence in this movie? And it's named after what is probably an Alexi Sale joke. <laughs> With a town called Bastard, um, again, Dudley Sutton as a mute gunslinger. I mean, who doesn't want to watch that, you know? Yes. And I'm sure, I'm sure it's got a hearse driving about, which just reminds me of Doctor Who, Greatest Show in the Galaxy. Oh, yeah, yeah. So there's, there's some weird sort of... I, I love that about, about Spaghetti Westerns. It goes, okay, this is, the, this is the 
this is the setup. Now let's go one bit weirder. Let's go one step further. Yeah. Um, this is the actual just let's just balls to the wall out the weirdness straight yeah. to hell, isn't it? <laughs> but again, but, it's like that image of the hearse driving around. You could put that straight into straight to hell and it wouldn't stick yeah. out. It is proof that this out. is this is reacting to something real that's actually in those movies. Yeah. And although, as we say, there's no sort of crossover audience, these things are, were still getting made, you know. So, I mean, I I think this would be a good double bill with um, Comic Strip Presents Fistful of Travellers Checks. Yes. Seeing yeah. as we're talking about Alexi Sale and that. I mean, that is almost like the uh, the support feature to this film, really. Yeah. Again, another another idea of let's get a load of eccentric people uh plop them down in Spain on an old uh, spaghetti western set and let them pretend to play Clint Eastwood, Lee Van Cleef. Yeah. <laughs> and then throw in um, Aid Edmondson in a matador outfit and a very thick Yorkshire accent. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the thing when you said in terms of a town called Bastard, when you said Dudley Sutton plays a mute gunslinger, part of me did think, now... Did he have lines and then they heard his American accent? Is that what <laughs> happened to you? Well, he might have been drinking as well at that point. So they might just thought <laughs> he can't remember his lines. Let's just make him mute. There's a great story about Dudley Sutton, which I probably bore a lot of people with. I don't know if I've told it before, so apologies. But um, he used to share a fact with Mike Pratt, the star of Randall and Hopkirk Deceased. Oh, yeah. In the 60s. And he said to Mike Pratt one day, he said, that programme you're doing, that Randall and Hopkirk, he said, I could do with a part on that. I'm really skint. Nobody's employing me because my drinking's getting a bit out of hand. And he turned around, he said, Dudley, you were in it last week. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Um, It's genius, isn't it? You completely forget what you were doing the week before. (laughs) I think that's That's the mark of a true alcoholic, isn't it? (laughs) That's a, that's a this is a good place to have that story in because I cannot think of many other opportunities we'll have to talk about Dudley Sutton no. on pop screen. I mean, this should be a podcast just devoted to Dudley Sutton. <laughs> yes, yes. Join us uh, in 2023 when we launch the Sutton Files here. At <laughs> Uh, as well as our introductory podcast for people who aren't familiar with Dudley Sutton called Sutton Who. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> I feel like we probably can't go far beyond that, can we? That's the end of the show. You can't peak that, you can't top that. No Definitely way. Not. Just uh yeah, just do laps around the garden now. That's what I'd do. <laughs> <laughs> I do want to um, just throw in very quickly, if we're talking about, um, if if by any chance viewers do uh, watch this and go, I must check out Straight to Hell, um, and then think, what other weird British Westerns are there? Mm. <laughs> and like I said, we've got um, Fistful of Travellers Checks. That's a good one. There's also a very weird one on YouTube called The Ballad of Kid Divine, right? Um, which was made in sort of, about 89, 90, something like that. It's got the most bizarre cast. It's again, it's it's up in um Italy. Yeah. 
and it's got um, Jesse Birdsall that used to play Marcus Tandy in El Dorado. He's Kid <laughs> Divine, the Cockney Cowboy. Uh, Neil Morrissey and Martin Clunes are some Irish um, bounty hunters. And that'll be before Men Behaving Badly, right? Yeah, I think so. Or just before. I'm not sure now. And also Michael Elphick. Um, oh, it's like of this, amazing uh, drunks. Another fantastic drunk, isn't he? Yeah. Uh, he, um, he's a, a snake oil salesman and mm. assassin. <laughs> and it's, it's only about 50 minutes long. But if you are watching... It's my sort of dream supporting feature. I mean, you could have a perfect night of watching Straight to Hell, Fistful of Chat, Traveller Checks, The Ballad of Kid Divine, The Cockney <laughs> Cowboy. And just that's it. Get that and a bottle of um, tequila and you sorted, I think. <laughs> I've never seen Edgar Wright's A Fistful of Fingers, which No, I've not seen early. that either. That's another one that uh, needs to be discussed in, in this context as well. Yeah, but yeah. I've not seen that either. I believe it's on uh, Rare Film. I believe it's okay. it's free to view on there. Um, so it's worth checking out, but I've not got around to checking it out. Well, I think that's about covered everything, right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Um, only, only one other thing I want to throw in is there's a moment where um, Kato Raiden starts singing Danny Boy and everybody joins in, mm. but they were about to fight at one point. That is just a night out in Liverpool. <laughs> <laughs> If you want to stop a fight, just sing Danny Boy. <laughs> yes, I think John Bishop does something similar with the Son Tavins on Doctor Who this week, didn't he? I just walk out of here. <laughs> <laughs> He's very good in that. He's very good. But that's yes. a different podcast as well, isn't it's it? It's a different podcast, yeah. <laughs> But yes, listeners, if you've enjoyed what you've listened to, uh, don't forget you can donate to our Patreon and get a bonus episode every month. We are uh, current. I am currently editing a uh, episode on Crock of Gold, Julian Temple's documentary about Shane McGowan, to partner with this episode. That rings a bell. No idea who's <laughs> on it. No idea who's no, on it. No, no, some. Some, some annoying person, yeah. Some twat. <laughs> <laughs> some pretentious wankers on there, just <laughs> banging on, boring the ass of everybody. <laughs> so yes, uh, that's available as well as our other movie podcast directors lottery and my twice weekly Doctor Who reviews as well. But well worth it. I thank you. But I'll yes. pay you the five and after. <laughs> Well, it should be paying me some money in it anyway, because it's on our Patreon, but... It's on Patreon, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but yes, until next week, listeners, that's been Yellow from Pop Screen. I've been Graham. And Gringos, I've been Mark Cunliffe. And we'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.